0: good morning good to see you all here today we going to continue in our study of colossians chapter one we're going to deal with chapter verses 13 and 14 this morning i want to uh, thank the church again for your gift and generosity last week that was very kind and we really do appreciate it, it means a lot to us last sunday we learned from paul's prayer for the colossians Uh, What a life that pleases God looks like. Namely, it's a life that that bears fruit. He says, Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. God is also pleased to give us strength to accomplish this fruit-bearing life. He writes, Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And God is... Please, by thankful hearts. Paul continued, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share an inheritance of the saints in light. So, this morning, we're going to finish out Paul's prayer. We're going to look at the final two verses. But before we do that, let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word to teach us, Lord, to form. Uh, our minds and our thoughts Lord, our ideas that challenge and, and uh, give us guidance for our attitude and behavior. Father, I pray this morning you would speak to our hearts, you would speak to our minds. Father, I pray that you would use your word to, um, to mold, to fashion us and to shape us. Lord, and we recognize that your word, um, Lord, it goes forth and it accomplishes all that you purpose it to accomplish. Father, and I pray that you would, with your word, Lord, you would send your, the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that your word would not fall on deaf ears, but that it would fall on ears ready to hear, Lord, hearts that are open to hear from you, Lord, I ask that you would do these things to bring yourself glory, amen. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul prays. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, you may be thinking that those verses don't really sound like a prayer. Indeed, I would agree with you. Paul is not petitioning God for anything. He is no longer interceding on behalf of the Colossians. But he is nonetheless, nevertheless, praying for them. He is intending to teach them an important truth through his prayer. Pastors do that sometimes. They teach through their prayer. And in an earlier sermon on Paul's greeting, I mentioned that Paul's theme could be summed up in the phrase, Grace to you and peace from God the Father which is in verse two. I told you that as we study this book, we would see Paul expound upon this idea. And our text this morning is the concise explanation of his theme. He is adding on to further developing his theme of grace and peace. And he, in this passage, verses 13 and 14, Paul is explicitly and specifically applying that theme to the Colossians. Now, Paul will spend the rest of this letter working out the details of this deliverance, of this transfer that God has undertaken for believers. When we read these two verses, my imagination just takes off. I mean, it has the makings of an epic tale. There is a domain of darkness that people are held captive in. They're in need of deliverance, And there is another kingdom, one that can only be described as a kingdom of the beloved son. The imagery here is vivid, and it captivates the imagination. One is drawn into this narrative Paul is describing. It's a narrative of a reality. Paul is describing the narrative of the spiritual world in which we live. But Paul's description of this reality is very specific. He is not speaking in general terms. He is talking about a hero who performs a great saving act. Indeed, Paul is giving us a description in the form of a narrative. Salvation. It is to be delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. This is salvation. This is a description of what happens to a person when God saves them. When God saves a person, he is in effect taking them out of the spiritual realm of darkness and placing them into a new kingdom. A kingdom where his beloved son rightly rules in love, in glory, and peace, justice, and righteousness. And before we dig deeper into this passage... I need to say something regarding the cultural context of the Roman world and the city of Colossae, more specifically, and how uh, that relates to Paul's letter. The ancient Roman world is known for its array of gods. There were many different gods and, and spirits with which humans must take into account. Uh, there was not just the, the, the popular gods, um, Jupiter and Apollo and um, the god of the ocean and war and all that, but there were also uh, lesser deities that um, influenced their daily lives. And even then, there were um, kind of half-gods that that could come and just wreck your life at any given moment. And so the people in the Roman world were constantly aware of the spiritual realm in which they lived and how it impacted their daily life. And who was more powerful in what area of life. You know, oh, if something if someone's sick, then I need to go appease such and such God. If if um if you know I'm having trouble with my boss, I need to go appease this God. If I'm having trouble with my children, I need to go appease this God or this deity. And Colossae was located in or on a, a, a major trade route And so they were also exposed to all different kinds of philosophies and spiritual worldviews. And so Paul is writing to the church in Colossae with these views in mind. um, How these views have affected the, the city of Colossae, and he's trying to combat that through his letter. And although we don't know the specifics, it would appear that there have been false teachers that have come into the, to the church and affecting the church, and they were attempting to diminish Christ's role in the spiritual realm. I mean, after all, Jesus Christ was a crucified Messiah. I mean, that is an oxymoron of oxymorons. How, how could a Messiah be crucified? How could a Savior, the one who has come to save, was the one who got killed? Uh, he was an abject failure. If he was the Messiah, if a man was killed like a common criminal, then obviously he was not very powerful in the spiritual realm because he was killed. He couldn't he couldn't overcome the other spiritual forces to save his own life. So at best. He was just not very powerful and at worst, he was cursed by the gods to be crucified on a cross. So Colossians has a unique emphasis on the spiritual realm and Christ's place in it. In just two verses next week, Lord willing, starting in verse uh, 15, we are going to dive deep into one of the most Christ-exalting passages in all of Scripture. Colossians 1:15 through 20. And verses 13 and 14 set the stage for the teaching in the next paragraph. Salvation is a spiritual act by God in which he places us into the kingdom of his son. And then in verse 15, Paul will launch into teaching who this person is, who is this beloved son, showing why in the world you would ever want to be in his kingdom. Why in the world you'd want to be in a kingdom that is ran by a crucified messiah. So now, let's focus on the passage. First, I want us to notice that God is the primary actor in this passage. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He has given us redemption. He has given us forgiveness. We are the ones being delivered. We are the ones being redeemed. We are the ones being uh, transferred. We are the ones being forgiven. So what I want you to see here is that God is the one who saves. Our God is a God who saves. We worship and serve a saving God. We often take that for granted. We just become so used to it. It's not a new idea to us. And so it doesn't have freshness. We just start to overlook it. We want to move on to the next thing. God did not have to save us. I'm going to say that again. God did not have to save us. He did not have to provide a way for salvation, let alone be the one who does the saving. And if he hadn't, we would all be damned to hell. Because no one is good enough. No one is smart enough. No one is kind enough or clever enough to save themselves. God could have left humanity in our sin. He could have washed his hands and been done with us and walked away. But he didn't. He is a God who saves. Paul says in Romans 1.17 that the gospel, that is, um, that one is saved by grace through faith in Christ. This is truth. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. God saving people reveals his righteousness. It demonstrates to us his character, that he is good, that he is true, that he is righteous. That's the kind of God we serve. And I'm amazed sometimes with my own thinking, my own attitude. And I think all of us at one time or another, if we are Christians, there was a time in our lives where we were amazed at this truth. We were amazed at God's salvation. We just couldn't believe it. It was too good to be true. We were awestruck at the fact that God is a God who saves. And not only that, but he is a God who saved me. We're blown away. We saw in that truth God's remarkable character. And yet, my experience, as I've journeyed in my life, there are times that truth grows stale. I know in my head that salvation is God's gift. And we know it is by grace and not by works so that no one can boast. And yet I often find myself thinking and living as if the opposite were true. I start to get the attitude in my head that while my initial salvation was God's gift, for me to remain saved, well, that's up to me. As if I could keep my salvation through my good works. And that is a lie. That is a lie from Satan to get us to start thinking about ourselves in terms of our salvation and not stay focused on the God. Who saves. Paul asked the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, he says, having begun by the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Meaning, are you now being sanctified for, by your own efforts to obey laws? Does he who supplies you the spirit and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul is trying to get across that Christians are not sanctified through our own efforts. Rather, we are made perfect by faith. We are saved through faith. That is, forgiven, justified before God. And we are also saved by faith, meaning we are sanctified. We remain Christians. We grow in our walk with God We grow in holiness through faith by God's grace, just like our initial salvation was by grace through faith. So, Christian, we must have faith in God's grace to live day by day, to obey day by day, to grow day by day, just as we had faith in his grace to save us in the first place. God is the founder and perfecter of our faith. From beginning to end, He has us in the palm of His hand. So let us trust in Him and let us rest in Him. Let us have full faith in His ability to keep us. I want us to notice something else. God did not just deliver us out of something, leaving us exposed and vulnerable. He also transferred us to a new home, a new state of existence. He took us out of the chaos, the fear of danger, or excuse me, He took us out of the chaos, out of the fear and danger of the kingdom of darkness, and He placed us into the safety, security, and comfort of the beloved Son. Now, unfortunately, we live in a time that I must pause and clarify what I mean by safety, security, and comfort. Because even among Christians, when these words are used, we automatically think of worldly comforts such as a heated building, an air-conditioned home, food on the table, clothes on our back, a job, a vehicle, prestige, or a Bank account, a savings account. Those types of securities and comforts are the furthest kind of security and comforts to which I am referring to. Paul said he considered all of those things trash as compared with the worth and value of knowing Christ. And listen to Paul's list of worldly comforts. He says, To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. So when he doesn't have these worldly pleasures, what is his response? He has a spiritual response for his lack of worldly pleasures. When reviled because he stinks, because he's hungry, because the clothes on his back have holes in them, he blesses. When, when mocked because of his lack of worldly things, he entreats, he endures. He continues on. But Paul doesn't stop there. In another more elaborate passage, he says, Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I drift at sea. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Are you getting the picture? Paul lived in danger because of the gospel. He said he was in toil and hardship. He had many sleepless nights. He was in hunger. He was in thirst. He was without food. He was in the cold. He was exposed. And he says, apart from other things, there's more I could say. But let me just go straight to the chase. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. He had all that stuff that he didn't have and all those terrible things that had happened to him. And where was his focus? The anxiety I actually struggle with is my anxiety for the church of God. Many Christians throughout the ages have gone without all the luxurious uh, comforts we have in American society. We enjoy more than any other nation at any other time in all the history of man. And yet, they too, perhaps even more, have been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son to know a safety, a security, and a comfort that only God can provide and has provided for those who trust him and who love him. And now let me say a word about the domain of darkness. What what might Paul mean here when he uses the phrase domain of darkness? Well, a passage of scripture, I think, that might shine some light on this is found in Acts. And it's a passage in which Paul is recounting his conversion experience. I'll just read it for you. He says, and when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, "Who are you, Lord?" And the Lord said, "I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant, as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now this last statement sounds very familiar. It parallels our passage this morning. Jesus, describing Paul's ministry, says to him, so that They, that is the Gentiles, may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. The conclusion we can draw from this then is that the domain of darkness is the power of Satan. The domain of darkness is the spiritual realm of Satan's power. It is the reality that every human lives in that we are under the sway of Satan. The first humans believed Satan over God. Adam and Eve believed Satan, the snake, the serpent who deceived them. They believed him instead of God. And their offspring, all of humanity throughout the rest of history, has followed in their tragic footsteps. Believing the lies of Satan has allowed Satan to continue to hold sway over us. Disguising himself as an angel of light, seeking whom he can devour, he only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He wreaks havoc on people's souls, on people's minds, on relationships, on families, on communities, and on societies. And Paul says, God has delivered the Christian out from under the power of Satan. He has snatched us out from Satan's control so we no longer do his will. We're no longer captives of his empire of destruction. We no longer believe his lies and lie in return. God has taken us out and transferred us into a new realm, a new glorious kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. So what about this kingdom of the beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins? Well, Paul writes to the Colossians saying that it is in God's beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So not only has God delivered us from the corruption of Satan's will, not only has he transferred us into the kingdom of his son, so we are in the power of light. We live in a kingdom of love, of honor, of virtue and purity. Our new king has paid the price for our redemption and acquitted us of the guilt we occurred while we were living under the realm of the evil one, why we were complicit in his destruction, why we were complicit in his ways going on and living our lives the way we wanted to, to please ourselves and, and living our lives against the will of God, Jesus Christ paid the price to get us out. So we were captives. We were slaves. Paul even says that we were enemies of God. He writes in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Many of us know that passage, but Paul goes on. He says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. What a hero Jesus is. What a savior Who did not just make a way. He did not just say, okay, here's the door. Anybody who wants to go, can, you know, free to walk out. No. No, he paid the way. He didn't just pave it. He didn't just make the road. He paid for the road. And it cost him his life. And not only that, but now he goes back into enemy territory and he seeks us out to deliver us from the bondage of the evil one so that we may live free from guilt and awakened by the Holy Spirit of God. That is what it means to live in the kingdom of the beloved son. You may be wondering this morning, How may I enter into that kingdom? That doesn't sound like the kind of kingdom I'm experiencing. I don't know that I live in that kind of realm. I don't have that kind of thinking. How do I get there? How may I enter into the kingdom of the beloved son? How can I escape the domain of darkness? How does God do this great feat of heroism? How does God perform such a daring act of deliverance? For you and I, what we need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved from the domain of darkness. The whole aim of the Christian is to continue to follow Jesus. We continue to place our faith and trust in Christ. We trust him as our leader. We believe in his promises. We become his followers. So we trust him for salvation of our soul, and he will deliver us from the domain of darkness. He will transfer us to the kingdom of the beloved son and you will be redeemed. Your sin will be forgiven. You will experience life in the new spiritual realm that can only be called the kingdom of the beloved son. Let's pray. Dear father, I thank you that you are a God who saves. Oh, Lord, help us never to forget it. Lord, let it be fresh in our minds every day. Let it fill our hearts with joy that we serve a God who saves people from death. Who saves people from an eternal hell. Who saves people from living and walking around in a realm of spiritual darkness when some people don't even realize it because they're so deceived. You are a God who delivers people out of that reality of spiritual darkness, and you transfer us into the kingdom of your beloved son. So Father, I pray that you would make these realities more evident to us every day, filling our hearts with the truth of your word and granting us the faith to believe in your promises. What I ask that you would do this to spread your kingdom out across Glasgow and Missouri and the United States that the kingdom of your beloved Son would be jam-packed full with worshipers. I ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.